Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The famous refrain of Jeremiah 10, verse 23. And doesn't it highlight in each of our minds the beautiful thought of the leadership and the instruction that God provides so that we, in fact, can have that pathway and follow it that indeed leads to everlasting life. The songs that Brother Jonathan has led us in this morning have challenged us to give thought, of course, to all is well with our soul. And I trust that we've each been able to sing with truly a spirit and a sense of comfort and appreciation. And in many ways, those songs do challenge us to give thought to the reverence of God. The title, in fact, for the lesson this morning. It is somewhat interesting to give thought to these ideas. These are by no means a shocking thing to any of us. But we each know that we live in a world in which reverence for God is often a difficult thing to, to ascertain and find. We often find the name of God so easily insulted. We find His will neglected and forgotten. We find appreciation concerning His dictates and instructions sometimes adamantly opposed. Interesting, isn't it, that so often reverence for God is almost completely unobserved. I would ask that we each think about the fact that that idea of reverence for God is a permeating truth. It should pervade every element, certainly, of the life of a Christian. And it ought to provide guidance and a framework in which our worship and, yea, all elements of our service to God should be bounded. But as we think about reverence for God, I hope today's lesson will remind us about the awesomeness of Him and your and my rightful place as we adore and reverence Him as we should. Perhaps it would be fair to begin a lesson like this one with a brief rehearsal. And I do emphasize the word brief, for there are so many reasons as to why we should reverence Him. Let's just list a few of them and use them as a springboard for the remainder of the lesson this morning. First of all, as you and I look at the Bible, just notice a few of His descriptions and a few of His attributes and a few of His works. You'll notice the very first one. He is acclaimed so often in Scripture to be great. Now, frankly, no human being is great like He is. Sometimes we utilize that word and we give it a latitude in which a certain person is called great, and yet the Bible calls God great. In Psalm 33, you'll notice verses 6 and following. Notice especially verses 6, 8, and 9. In that little section of verses, we find the marvelous psalmist David acclaiming, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. The sheer fiat of creation, the ability of Him to speak and to bring things into creation that previously were not in existence, Two verses later, let all the earth fear Him. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. We've often noted that that word awe and awesome is sometimes utilized with a tremendous latitude that allows men or sometimes animals and other things to be described. And here, God is worthy of being awed. You'll notice the very last verse. For He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Sometimes the, the limitations and the considerations of science and other things, humankind can often design and build something and 30 years later, sometimes far less, it's torn up. Think about the solar system. 
The sun has been burning brightly now ever since the day God created it, and it still stands each morning as a centerpiece in that sky reminding us of the sturdiness, the rigidity, and the purity of God's work. It doesn't tear up at some moment. It doesn't fall out of the sky at some particular consideration. Not only that, you'll notice in Psalm 86, verse number 10, the psalmist so interestingly highlighted again the beautiful activity of God, and there it says He is great. Next on that list, you'll notice, we find in Revelation 14, a careful description of the fact that God's creation was made by Him and it was for His pleasure. And it is for that reason that we should honor Him, glorify Him. Sometimes it's sad that individuals look upon the creation, explain it by any number of other naturalistic explanations, and thus remove God and He gets no glory for it. Revelation 4.11 says that ought not be. God deserves all the credit and all the glory and all the glory and power from it. Those are just a sampling of some of these next ones to follow. What about the great love that the Scriptures utilize to describe that attribute of God? In the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we find that there is a very realistic description. You and I are found in sin and we serve the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 verse 2. However, two verses later, there's a dramatic transformation. Because it says, but God loved us, and it makes reference to the great love wherewith He loved us. It's a great love. You'll notice that attribute of God's love is highlighted in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. In fact, at the close of verse number 8, it very clearly says God is love. You and I know that there is love in existence in human families. As a husband loves his wife, and a wife loves her husband, and parents love their children, we understand that. But consider the love of God as it was directed toward you and me, even while we were enemies. Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Surely in light of those things, aren't we already beginning to touch the tip of the iceberg? We should reverence God for these reasons and others. Look at the next one, if you would, please. The exemplification of that great love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, verse 16. And later, wasn't it true that Paul would such dramatic character say, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. That gift, of course, referencing the Christ Jesus our Lord, 2 Corinthians nine fifteen. Those matters highlighting God's love, the attribute of His greatness in creation. Notice about His holiness as well as His perfection. In Psalm 99 as well as Psalm 18, it is there affirmed, His ways are perfect. Doesn't that bring excitement to us? I'm sure not perfect in the sense He is. And may I say, none of us are. We have our faults, our imperfections, our failures in one way or another, but yet with regard to both completion and absolute perfection, that is descriptive of God. The psalmist knew that lesson and set it forth before us again, both in Psalm 18 as well as Psalm 99. 
with God's perfection, doesn't that again suggest He's worthy of our reverence? Maybe the next one. What about the attribute of His judgeship? Today, you and I know so often that judges are acclaimed as worthy of respect and honor. Certainly some of those television shows that display judges, maybe those aren't so much so, at least the way they're, they're treated. But we know when you walk into the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., those nine individuals, those Supreme Court justices, are such that those lawyers and those who plead cases before them treat them with the highest of reverence, human-wise at least, highest of dignity, and the highest of respect for the office they hold and for the work that they do. What about the judgeship of God? I would call to your attention two passages. One in the early days of the Old Testament in Genesis 18. We remember on that occasion, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Our God does always judge correctly, equitably, properly in light of His will. And oh, how marvelous was the refrain that Paul used in Acts 17 as he recollected that thought of God's judgeship. For the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. When Paul stood in the midst of these heathen individuals there in the ancient city of Athens and proclaimed that message, he said, God does not turn a blind eye to wickedness, but He commands every man to repent. And he asserted the reason because he's judge. And he is going to stand as that judge before all. Surely in light of that judgeship, isn't it worthwhile to reverence him correctly? As you come near the bottom of that slide, that thought of the judge characteristic of God does highlight before us the fact that he is a God of wrath. Just as surely as we've highlighted His love earlier a few minutes ago, the Bible is so quick to highlight also His wrath. That text that Joey read just a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 12, I would redirect your attention to that if I might. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. The Hebrew writer highlighted in, earlier in that very same chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, the mistakes that, say, Esau in the ancient day of the long ago had made. And we all remember as well what he had chosen to do. But yet we notice here that that is contrasted to you and I as we strive to serve Him acceptably. And the verse it says like this, with reverence and godly fear. No wonder then we're admonished to be reverent in our service to God. Surely one last idea then should be how often we see in the Bible proper responses by a number of individuals. I would quickly call to your attention some of these, and I'm sure that they immediately spring to mind as we at least immediately start to think of them. You remember the scene of Moses. 
Here was an individual who himself found himself on the back skirts of Midian, if you please, and yet a burning bush appeared before him, and one of the first things that God through that bush said, take off your sandals, for the ground on which you walk is holy ground. Approaching God demanded a proper understanding of reverence on Moses' part. It demanded a proper consideration of God's greatness. God wasn't to be just approached as a near of kin or a best friend, if you please. His greatness was to be highlighted and understood in that regard. Perhaps another one would be Joshua chapter 5, in which there Joshua was told something very similar. You may recall that the scene was shortly to take place in which the children of Israel would battle against the city of Jericho. In preparation for that event, Joshua found himself beside a body of water. And as he saw the reflection therein in that water, he was told, the ground on which you stand, Joshua, is holy ground. And he needed to never forget that God was great and awesome and he was to be properly reverenced. Surely in light of those things, the text of Psalm 89 rings in our ears. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. When you and I assemble and when we meet, one of the highest obligations is to properly reverence Him, to understand that what we do here is an insignia. It is a matter of proclaiming in reverence that which truly is His nature. And to fail in that regard speaks very poorly of us. No wonder in light of these verses that challenge us to appreciate God's greatness and why we should reverence Him. Let's look at some details or some specifics of ways we can do that, not only in our worship, but yea, even in other attributes of our life as well. So far, we've highlighted on a number of occasions in this lesson the attribute of worship, and so may I use that as this next portion of the lesson this morning. What you and I do when we assemble at times like this is of fundamental importance. I realize it's a constant challenge to each of us, and the devil wants it to be a challenge. He wants you and I to look upon worship as nothing more than something else to check off each week. No more important than going to the grocery store. No more important than going to get a haircut. No more important than dropping the car off to get it fixed at the local mechanic. But fundamentally, worship is not like any of them. Worship is of much greater significance. For in this, the very reverence of God is to be appreciated. Again, we should strive to serve Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And did you notice that the very, verse, the very first matter in that verse of Hebrews 12, 28 said, We've received a kingdom, and that kingdom is the church. And thus, as this church assembles, as we lift high the banner on the first day of the week of worshiping the God of heaven, it should be a highlighted activity of reverencing who He is and that which He has done. For those reasons, recall what the Lord proclaimed in Matthew chapter 4, on that very scene in which the devil tempted him relative to worship. Remember, the devil said, Fall down and worship me. Jesus was so quick to reply, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Worshiping God is then a particular matter such that only He is deserving of worship. 
only He is deserving of that attribute of reverence that attaches to worship. Surely, in light of those things, we easily appreciate then the authority that discusses and that forms a boundary to worship. Colossians 3.17 reads it like this, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. You may recall with me that the very previous verse, verse 16, highlighted singing, one of the most beautiful portions, of course, of worship. And yet, he followed that up immediately by affirming that whatever you do, let it be done in response to God's authority and His proclamation. Maybe in light of that, you notice some of the next observations. Worship is a great responsibility. It truly is a privilege, but a great responsibility. Think of for just a moment of the sadness that would accompany an individual standing on that great judgment day having not engaged in worship as God had so directed. To have modified it, altered it, changed it to suit his needs or his wishes. When all the while, again, worship is directed supposedly according to Scripture and according to what God has affirmed. Oh, how easily that responsibility is seen in verses like these. God's a spirit, and they that worship Him must, and may I suggest we highlight must, worship Him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Wasn't it Jesus who Himself in Matthew 26, verses 28 and following, highlighted the fact in terms of the Lord's Supper of that day, I'll drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we partake of this Lord's Supper in a few moments, the Lord, not physically here in our presence, but He in spirit is able to enjoy the power and majesty and reverence with which we partake of this Lord's Supper. It is a remembrance of His body and His blood. That's a beautiful consideration, isn't it? No wonder worship then has within it attributes that make it so different than these other things I listed earlier, grocery store shopping or otherwise. Maybe in light of those considerations of worship, what does that mean in terms of you and I as we participate in it? Well, surely it means, among other things, we individually must never forget the dignity and the seriousness that associates to worship coming to the house of our Lord to assemble to worship is not like going to the movie theater. It's not like going to watch a ball game in Nashville. It's not like going to the local high school ball games on Friday night. As much fun and as enjoyable as those things might be, worship is fundamentally different than all of them. And thus we must approach it not with a frivolity and triviality that might characterize a visit to some of those things, but this is a matter of seriousness, and it's a matter of great responsibility and dignity. You might appreciate also that means that it involves some preparation on your part and mine. How often does the Bible speak about our preparation as it relates to our contribution, for example, to make sure we have laid by in store so that things will be ready? We know that that preparation may involve our clothing or what we're going to wear so that Sunday morning will proceed smoothly. But that preparation should, of course, be blessed by the fact that as we come together, it's not then frenetic and chaotic and hurried, and we're able to enter into worship solemnly, seriously, 
and reverentially. Reverence to God. You'll notice that would also include some of these other issues. As we strive to appreciate the blessing of coming together, Paul spoke to the Romans in Romans 12 verse 5 and highlighted the fact we are members one of another. Isn't it true that in worship we encourage, we teach, we admonish each other? Colossians 3.16 Isn't it true in worship then that we set examples of faithfulness and godliness for each other? And thus, we should strive as we participate in that attribute of worship to not only understand its dignity, but to highlight the concentration that should also come along with it. All of the aspects of our worship, our singing, our prayers, the gathering around the Lord's Supper, the contribution, and yeah, even the lesson, all of them require our mental activity. They require our concentration. I know that there are times that that's difficult for us, and the devil wishes it to be that way. He wants our mind to wander. He wants us to be daydreaming. He wants us to fail to appreciate the reverence attached to proper service to God. I know sometimes at school I face that, and perhaps at times physics isn't that exciting for everybody, and my students nod off. May I say nodding off in a physics class, it nearly as serious as failing to participate in worship. Notice again, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. What does it say if I do attend? I come to the building, but I don't participate in worship. I sit there and I don't sing when the songs are sung. I don't study in the Bible. I don't, in fact, word even mentally the thoughts of the prayer. My mind is elsewhere. Have I worshipped that day? I've gone to the building, but that's a different question. Have I worshipped? Worship, by definition, is acts of reverence directed to God. And if I haven't participated in those acts, then quite frankly, by definition, I have not worshipped. Surely, in light of those matters of concentration, we are in a technological age, and sometimes that's becoming more challenging. I suppose there was a time many years ago when youngsters or even older ones might pass notes and take up the time by doing other things, and now we have cell phones. We have other kinds of technological things, and those can be marvelous aids in worship when used correctly. But this is not the time for an older person to be playing games. It's not a time to be checking texts or emails. It's not a time to be looking at the latest news on the Yahoo page. Worship is more dignified and solemn and more important than that. Maybe in light of those things, you'll notice sometimes we have to watch ourselves. Am I setting the wrong example in worship? When others watch me, are they gaining a thought of reverence for God or are they gaining a thought of irreverence for God? That's a good question for each of us, isn't it? I suppose we could ask it like this. If someone were to watch and imitate me in worship, would that tend to encourage and highlight the reverence in worship or would it tend to do the opposite? Our youngsters are precious blessings indeed and we look forward of course for them to grow and to mature as they watch and learn from our worship and our activities therein one of the bottom aspects calls upon us to consider what kind of behavior and conduct am i displaying in worship 
forevermore. Isn't it interesting that in the days of Malachi, those individuals of that ancient era were sorely rebuked because they had allowed worship to degenerate into nothing more than a time of their own personal enjoyment and entertainment. The God of heaven through Malachi said, I won't have it. I just won't have it. Has anything changed? In principle, it hasn't, has it? No wonder all those matters on that slide have prepared us for the closing observations of the lesson. And I thought we would just very quickly list some passages reminding us about the authorized five acts of worship and the idea of reverence that attaches to each one of them. I know that there are many in our world who would look upon those and say, they're outdated, they're old-fashioned, we need more lively, contemporary activities in worship. And I suppose until the end of time, the church is going to fight a battle. It's not an issue of outdatedness. It's an issue of what God has said He wants. And it's an issue of what God has said pleases Him. And in worship, these are it. There are no others. As you start that list, you'll notice how joyfully you and I together in prayer can make our petitions and our wants known unto God. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and following, there's an extensive description of the power and blessedness that attaches to prayer. Notice it says in that that men are lift up holy hands, and so we appreciate God's directive for the men to lead these prayers. It's not in any way that we wish to be insulting to anyone else. We merely wish reverentially to follow that which is the dictate of heaven. But notice he thus stated in that particular passage, as well as in that text of 1 Thessalonians 5, the marvelous wonder of praying without ceasing. As you and I gather, notice how Jesus began his prayer, Our Father which art in heaven. Now notice that was a prayer as he taught his disciples to pray, and yet he began that prayer with such a note of reverence, Notice he then said, Hallowed be thy name. When you and I pray, may we ever recognize our submissiveness to him. It's not that we're trying to tell him what to do. We're striving merely to humbly follow him and to pray as he has commanded us. Not only the attitude of prayer, what about the blessedness of the contribution? It truly is an honor to be able to contribute to the work of God financially. There is, in today's bulletin, a statement that as we here support a congregation considerably east of here in North Carolina, that congregation is in a region in which the church is extremely weak in terms of number at least, and yet we have the opportunity to assist that church to grow and to mature and to flourish, just like many in the New Testament era did as they supported Paul and his preaching in a number of places, again throughout the Roman Empire. The contribution is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, in which we are commanded to lay by every one of you in store as God hath prospered him on the first day of the week, that there be no gatherings when I come. We look forward to the opportunity of doing that and engage in a way that's cheerful, not grudgingly, not because we feel we have to, but because we reverentially thank God for what He's done for us and are happy to contribute back to Him. In the third place, what about the consideration of the Word of God? It still is amazing, isn't it, that in the days of Ezra in the Old Testament, the people stood up when Ezra read it. 
they had such a respect for the Word of God. Here at Pippin, we pray as we, I'm sorry, we stand as we pray into God. We notice how sweet it is to think about having that much respect for the Word of God. And yet, we find so many verses, such as Romans 6, 17 and 1 Peter 1, 22. In that Romans 6 passage, notice how Paul so grandly compliments the Roman brethren. He says unto them, very interestingly that, there was a time they were engulfed in sin, but they had obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which they'd received, and in so doing had become servants of God. That attribute of obedience, they surely respected it. They attended unto its proclamations. Today, may you and I highlight our reverence for God's Word as well. Fourthly, what about the singing? We have the privilege of lifting our voices and proclaiming some of the grandest messages of all. Is it well with your soul? I surrender all. Those are as scriptural as any thoughts that you and I can, can perhaps imagine. Because that question of is it well with your soul, if it's not, that should prompt me to do something, to make some changes with it. You and I notice in song we're told in Ephesians 5.19 that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But we do that in the following way. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The fifth and final observation on that slide comes, of course, with the Lord's Supper. If it be the will of God, in just a few moments we're going to join in that activity. And we each remember how that in 1 Corinthians 11, we're commanded to discern the Lord's body. That's not a time to take up six or eight minutes and think about today's lunch. It's not a time to consume and think about the Super Bowl next Sunday. It requires focus on our part and to think about the cross, to think about the shedding of His blood, the body that was so badly mutilated for you and me. You'll notice on the front of that table it says, In remembrance of me. The reverence for God. We close this lesson by turning to the conclusion slide on this whole, whole situation. Our God indeed is a consuming fire. And in so doing, all these matters of reverence really should not only touch the consideration of our worship, but yea, all the other features of our life as well. Let me say that husbands were told to love our wives. Did you ever think, though, that in the context of Colossians chapter 3, that statement finds itself as one way that you and I on a daily basis can properly reverence God? Wives, as you submit to your husbands, same kind of comment or statement. Children, as you obey your parents, day by day you're setting an example that you respect the Word of God and that you wish to live in harmony with His will. And in so doing, that gives an opportunity for others to see in your life a reverence for that which is the authority of God. May I say that even worship and as well as our daily life, Gives us privileges, doesn't it, to reverence the name of God. Today, surely, the matter of question is this. Are you a faithful Christian? If you are not at this point, it might well be you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel. You realize, of course, that that means you're lost. It realize, you realize that means that at this point you are separated from the God that loves you. He wants you to be in an association with Him. 
why not this day confess your belief, of course, as it follows your repentance, and in so doing, be buried in baptism. We'd be delighted to help you and to assist you if you have taken care of that at some point in life and have known the blessing that comes with it, but you have fallen away from your faithfulness. You have allowed reverence to be a distant memory. Worship, perhaps to this point in your life, has become a rather meaningless thing. You just go through the motions. Why not make some changes starting today? If you need prayers in a public way, come forward and let us pray with you and for you. We'd be happy to do it. If at this point we could be of help to anybody, Brother Jonathan's chosen a song of encouragement, and right now we would invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.